Hello and welcome to Climactic. But today's episode is not a work of the Climactic Collective. Normally, this show is where you can find the best of the other shows on the Climactic Collective, our podcast network. But sometimes we also shine a light on the other great media engaging with the climate crisis, or other aspects of life in these climactic times. And today's episode is one of those, a show from the community, but also a community show itself. Broadcast on 3CR Community Radio in Narm, Melbourne, and called the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Now in its 10th year, the community show has been there for the people who ask, so what are the solutions to all these problems they're telling us about? They've visited farming, forestry, and coal mining communities, financiers and filmmakers, politicians and high-speed rail and electric vehicle buffs to chronicle the transition that is a race against time. We're thrilled to be connected with Vivian and her team, and we can't wait to bring you more cool stuff as we begin to collaborate. The Experienced Hands and the Upstart Podcast Collective. Today's episode of Transition and Solutions takes us to Bangladesh, the front lines of the changed climate. And if you'd like to learn more about the world from a South Asian perspective, we're happy to announce Them Power, the newest show to join the Climactic Collective. Co-hosts Manit and Upeksha are young women who've grown up in Australia but are tackling the lack of South Asian voices and perspectives. They've covered topics from global warming, Australia's offshore refugee detention policy, confronting racism, rape culture, and recently COVID-19 but there's even more to be found in their nearly 20 episodes. Find the show on our website, climactic.com.au, or thempower.org. That's T-H-E-M-P-O-W-E-R.org. And now, enjoy this episode of the BZE Community Show. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We are broadcasting from 3CR in Melbourne and we will be heard in Sydney at Radio Skid Row. So Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the elders past and present of the Rwandjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. This is episode one in a new series from the front lines of climate catastrophe. In Bangladesh, there are frequent floods and cyclones People used to die in their thousands, 
like this desperate man recorded by Makbul as his house is swept away by one of the thousand rivers. I think this is like an I can't breathe moment. <laughs> Heavy rain and winds make many places inaccessible, and we talk to the founder of a floating hospital called Friendship. Her name is Runa Khan, and you will find her an ins as inspiring as Martin Luther King. It's not just about saving lives, she says, but giving back people's dignity. And we, in the high emissions world, can be partners in that by learning from them, not just sending a cheque in a crisis, but being real partners. It's just like you subscribe to 3CR as a partner with us in providing independent media. You can learn about people on the front lines of climate disruptions and do everything you can to stop Australia's emissions and exported emissions in coal and gas. We have only 25 million people, yet we are responsible for 1.28% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Bangladesh, with 160 million people, emits less than 1%. Our second Bangladeshi expert is eminent scientist Dr. Salim Ulhaq. He tells us about the damage to the Sundaban forest, how supercyclone Amphan was caused by heating the surface temperature on the Bay of Bengal. He says the response to COVID-19 by governments who listened to the science saved lives, and he cites New Zealand as being very good at that. The response to climate change, he says, needs to be the same. Go in early, go in hard and do not leave vulnerable people behind. So think of that, our response to COVID, it may have been patchy, but we can improve that for climate change. Go in early, go in hard, do not leave vulnerable people behind. Whereas Runa Khan is a spirited speaker, Dr. Salim Ulhaq is very calm, but both have fiery words that will open your heart. These people have no time for despair and powerlessness like so many of us in rich Australia. Runa is expecting five new hospital ships to be delivered soon, and the millions of people trained to warn people about cyclones and, and uh, floods are now going around with loud hailers in the villages, wearing masks and delivering a COVID pandemic health message. They are really well organised, and I've heard that Bangladesh is really a model for being on the front foot with adaptation to crisis. This is one of the most inspirational shows I've done. I so enjoyed talking to both of these people. Tonight we're going to Bangladesh in the wake of super cyclone Amphan. We've heard before that Bangladesh is a leader in adaptation to the awful conditions created by climate disruption. In the 1990s, a cyclone left 10 million people homeless and killed 140,000 people. Last year, Cyclone Fani only killed 17 people, I think, and two and a half million people were safely evacuated. Our guest tonight will be Miss Runa Khan. She's the founder of a not-for-profit organisation called Friendship, 
it started literally with a barge that was turned into a hospital ship. So welcome, Runa. Tell us about the remote river islands. People in Australia won't know this geography very well unless they've travelled to your country. I'd like to know how you had the idea to take services to those people eking out a living there. Thank you very much, Vivian. Um, I'm very pleased to be with you this evening. Um, so I need to describe Bangladesh a little bit to you. Bangladesh is a country of a thousand rivers. All right. You have three of the largest rivers in the world, which is uh, the Brahmaputra, as the Jamuna, the Ganges, which fly, flows in as the, as the Padda and the Meghna. And Bangladesh is built on silt. The average of Bangladesh, you know, the average height of Bangladesh is, they say 10 meters, but that's including the very narrow strip of hill tracks. So if you uh, take away the hill tracks, the country is between three to five meters high. You have tidal waves which come nearly more than center, you know, of the country. So when, and the, as, as I said, the whole country is built on silk and we don't have rocks. So when the mighty Himalaya, you know, from the mighty Himalayas, the river Brahmaputra comes into Bangladesh, no rocks, it is, it comes in at sometimes at 10 to 12 knots. So you can imagine what devastation it can cause, these rivers, on the silt land. A river can become 30 kilometers in breadth. You know, in breadth. So you can hold the city of Paris between its two banks. <laughs> and in that, you know, and on that river, you have these river islands, all silt built. And the river islands are broken and redone year after year. Now it's all right if you have a population of a million people in the country. This is a population of 170 million people who don't have places to stay. So continuously the people are migrating, the islands are migrating, and you are shifting. And so about 20 years ago, when I went into these river islands, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that people were actually able to survive, you know, with, you know, holding their lives, their livelihood, their assets, everything in their hands. And that is what they were doing. And, you know, people are, were shifting. They were continuously, you know, uh, they were migrating island to island or island to the cities. And, uh, and within that, I realized that they were so forgotten because nobody was coming to these islands mm -hmm. because they were just too difficult to manage. Services were too difficult to manage. And stepping back, you know, when you have nothing, what is the first thing you need to do? You need to ensure that people don't suffer. And mm -hmm. for me, saving lives became the, the kind of, you know, <laughs> was the only focus I had in my life to ensure that people did not suffer and I could save lives. And hence, I started with the first, you know, we are the pioneer in the world, actually, they say, of mobile NGO mobile hospitals yeah. ships. And so we started with the first mobile hospital ships and built the system from there. Right. 100% of the friendship work, just to say 100% of the friendship work and the communities we deal with, 100% are all either internally displaced people by climate action or they are the refugees coming from the Rohingya country, you know, from Myanmar. So right. we have refugees, 100% of our people, wow. the beneficiaries. Let's stick with the hospital idea. I think you also have uh, um, river ambulances as well. But what happens on those hospital ships? And now, especially as we're in a pandemic and you've just had another cyclone. Yes. So I, I need to describe a little bit on the friendship healthcare system. So, you know, when you have a hospital ship or you have a mobile unit, uh, 
in a way, people think that that's the end of it. It's not the end of it because suppose you've done an operation or, you're, or as we are doing, we're treating cervical cancer or we are with an EPI, you know, extended immunization for children. What do you do when you have to do follow-ups? So we could not only have the hospital ships. So the hospital ships were there and we had to take care of the people surrounding because that was our responsibility also. And uh, so we built a three-tier healthcare system. The hospital ships are the tier one. The satellite clinics and the static clinics, which are land-based clinics or mobile clinics, were tier two. And tier three were the community workers that we trained and empowered so that they could continue delivery of services even when we were not there, all linked together with the mHealth and algorithm-based software. So this is the three-tier system of friendship. Coming back to the hospital ships, so each hospital ship that we have got, we've got two now, we had three, but now it's two because the Greenpeace uh, boat, you know, the Rainbow Warrior we had for about six years, but that was a bit old. And we're having, we're going to get five new hospital ships this year. They're all under construction. Oh, so, the hospi <laughs> so the hospital ships have got, uh, they are actually equipped as secondary tier, up to secondary tier as a full-fledged unit. So we have, the people will stand outside in a line. They come in group by group. They are registered. Then they are sent to the specific doctor that they have to go to. And uh, it, they, we have got dental care, general care, of course, women and children care. Uh, we have a strong cervical, uh, cervical, uh, cervical cancer unit for screening and mm -hmm. also doing the first level of care. And we have very good pathology on all the hospital ships and two operation theatres. Well, you said in the webinar that saving lives is not enough. And I really sat up when you said that. You said saving <laughs> lives is not enough. What is your way of, you said you put down roots with people. It's not just a Band-Aid service where you come in in a crisis. Yeah. You want to make long-lasting connections with those people, but then you float away. Your boat sails away somewhere. So... What is your way of putting down roots in those communities so that they can face climate disasters, which are becoming more frequent? One reply is saving lives is not enough because you save a life and the person can die of an infection after you've saved their life <laughs> or they cannot get food after you've saved their life or they are socially so ostracized that they can't stand up with dignity. That is also gone. So, you know, you need to address things holistically in a community which has access to nothing, not even a road or not even electricity or a shop. You need to address all the all the difficulties together and a migratory community, you know, which is our climate impacted communities and migrations, you know, which we are. Yeah. As I said, we are dealing with 6.5 million people every year and they're all migratory people in some way or the other, you know. And, and for them, we needed to ensure that one, besides saving lives, also not only in health, but also when, when there was a climate disaster, which means in a climate disaster, it's preparedness. You know, the millions of people who could be saved because of the, you know, in spite of the cyclones coming, but because they were prepared, people like us and the government, we prepared them that when the cyclone warning comes, these are the steps you have to follow to go to these cyclone shelters, how to take your cows, or when the land is breaking, what do you do? Mm. You see, 
or when the storm comes in, how do you protect and you know ensure that your houses don't blow away so easily? When a bad cyclone comes, everything blows away. You know, <laughs> their houses don't stay; they have to move. But you know, for a normal like a, like uh, when you have like uh, one, two, three, four. Uh, uh, cyclones calling then then you can tie up your house and fix up your place and you know you can survive and it's extremely important for preparedness so we we do a lot of preparedness we do relief and even the community we have something which is community initiated disaster risk reduction where we link the communities uh, amongst themselves you know they all the communities we work with they know that they have to, uh, how many widows are there or how many old people are there and pregnant people are there and they know what to do. They know the phone calls. They have, they have, sometimes they ensure that they have planted enough banana plants so that they can make a raft and go if they don't have a boat. You see, yeah. so to a degree, you know, and for swimming, uh, of course, when the when the floods come in, you can't swim, but normal disasters, you know, <laughs> we do a lot of swimming training. Then we do, a, uh, then we also, you know, so if we prepare them what to do in case and also to save food when the, when the disaster, you know, when the, when the floods are kind of up to their roof. So how to save food, what is the kind of food they can save, how to uh, come back again and how to access government services. All this is linked yeah, uh, you know, together for saving lives. The next thing I want to ask you is about education. And you do a lot of education, a huge amount through theatre groups, through TV, through YouTube channels. Now, Australian listeners will know about this now because we're under lockdown with the coronavirus. And so we're all learning. Children have to do by distant learning because of that. But we do it all the time to these remote people and also classrooms for adult learners as well. And I think this is a huge job, but you put in this a code of ethics and dignity. You emphasize yeah. that something like that has to be at the center. And I'd like to know what results do you see from this ethics and dignity education and all the rest of the other sorts of education? Um, what results do you see, especially for women and girls? Hmm. So, Vivian, you know, when I started uh, schools, these were areas where teachers couldn't come. And uh, actually, there was no one taking, uh, 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 you know, doing high schools in these areas, you know, when we, when we started our schools here 20 years ago. And we needed to ensure that we take into account the geography of that area. And this is, I think, one of the key of the way we work. There are two essential threads of anything friendship does. One is ensuring that we take into account the geography and nature. This is something we learned 20 years ago that you could not fight. You know, you had to accept that there was there's a specificity and you needed to fit whatever you could within that specificity. Second was human rights, because if you do not imbue and nurture and bring out the essence, essential sense of value that a human being has, you are actually not equipping them for the future. You know, so. For example, in a disaster, I tell all my volunteers, you know, we have thousands of volunteers going for disasters. And in a disaster, that I tell them that do not take away more than what you are giving. You're giving them a bag of rice, you know, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. You're giving them a bag of, bag of rice. But if you do this in a way where they lose their self-respect, for example, throwing it at them, shouting at them, et cetera, you are taking away more than what you are giving them. And never do this. It's unacceptable. Because then 
that is the true sustainability of a project. You know, mm. that is where when you touch those. So for me, education was a very important factor. Now, education, I could equip, you know, we could try to equip these children with you know, linking them with the government system. It was impossible to teach them, you know, uh, Montessori systems or anything like, you know. So we had to go in for mass and mass, because there were millions of children, thousands and thousands of children in these all these areas. So we needed to find a very simple system which could be replicated. And, you know, so it's schools which can be brought down. Teachers are people women from the community whom we train to be teachers and they are linked to us initially we were having trainings now we are doing it through uh, through television through the computers <laughs> and this would only be all right up to the primary level but at the secondary level you needed good teachers so we have a recording studio in dhaka and we only had facilitators who were uh, you know uh, teaching the children you know who were there with the children whilst they learned from online now this is okay so this was good <laughs> now let's go back to code of ethics and then, then i'll link it up when we started i knew that i needed to equip these children in the best way possible and best way being not only academics because you know you can be very good in academics you can do nothing with your life you know, this happens that you have, you've fallen through the gap somewhere or you've not had, you know, either you are not strong enough to push that little bit of strength that you have. So I needed to build characters. And what is character building? For me, the most essential component is nurturing human values within the person. And so we started this code of ethics. And, I, and this is something which now, not only in our children, but all the lives we touch, you know, the 6.5 million lives we touch a year, everyone is, this is something which is in the forefront of every meeting, of every communication. And uh, so uh, I'll tell you a little story on this. Uh, so one day we had, uh, this was quoted by a, one of our teachers, you know, just like that as a story, you know, I once while talking to them that, he was passing somewhere, it was rain, you know, uh, near a river, and it was raining. It was, well, not a river, sorry. It's a little, it was a little stream. And he was just passing that, and it was raining. There was an old couple who was standing there. And this old couple said that, uh, uh, old couple, he said that, you know, please bring me that little boat to another group of children who were in that area. You know, please bring me that little boat. We want to cross. And the kids were not listening at all. They were playing. And the old man got so mad, he said, you know, I know you're not friendship children. If you were friendship children, you, without me asking you, would have brought the boat to me and helped me to cross. <laughs> you know, this, this is like so beautiful for me to hear that, yeah. you know, that we have given them something. And these children, every day we see, you know, how they have developed in character and strength and courage. So it has been a very important thing to ensure that even when the government is using our uh, our YouTube channels, etc., I managed to put in that value, you know, yeah. of the month in the code <laughs> of ethics. <laughs> well, another another thing about education is training people, and um, I imagine a lot of those river communities are off the grid, and they're even remote from feeling like citizens. It sounds like, yeah, they don't get any government yeah. services. They probably don't really feel they have any rights. Um, but I wonder, does friendship do anything with getting solar power 
to those people and training them to maintain the equipment. If you're not in a remote place, it happens in Australia too, remote communities have to have their own, um, you know, solar power. So do you help with that? Thank you, uh, Vivian. You know, what you have touched is how responsible are you to uh, ensuring that what you have sold to a poor person, you are continuing the service. <laughs> this is actually the crust of your question. You know, it's not only for solar powers, it's for, we try to do this for everything. So regarding solar power, we, of course, we brought in light into these islands and mm -hmm. it could only be done through solar power. So we have installed thousands of panels and most of them, 90% uh, of uh, you know, uh, uh, the panel, they are repaying us back. Of course, we have given some free to the ultra poor of very, you know. So our thing was that, uh, you know, what we wanted to do was ensure that the price of a lamp, which they were using, which is health-wise, et cetera, could be compensated by one light at the same cost. So that was the technique, you know, that was the idea that we went in. And we found that as years passed, they were wanting more than one light. They were wanting two lights and five lights and 10, you know, pans and a, and a little, uh, uh, you know, a little TV or something. And of course, mm -hmm. charging their phones. And, but, uh, you know, in every island, like it is with the, with the, with the solars, also for our, uh, uh, for our livestock, you know, the tackle, the livestock uh, loans that we give or, or the field, we always, or in the field, you know, for agriculture or fishing, we never just give the loan and come away. We ensure that in that community, there is one paravet. So we've got these paravets in every place that we have given a loan for a cow or a goat. We have, we started the first parasolar technician trainings in the country. And even to, uh, when we do government work, we train the people as parasolar technicians, community people who can repair and they know where to buy the uh, parts from. Many of them have set up shops, you know, and they have, uh, it's amazing the way human, you yeah. know, you know, human beings can develop. Yeah. And linking one of our services is in, one of our sectors is inclusive citizenship, which is linked with empowerment. Inclusive citizenship is where we deal with deep social issues, you know, human rights and issues. So we have these groups uh, in each village, many, many, everybody more or less is linked to this group. And these are, uh, and we have a parasolar, uh, and we have a paralegal aid. So in and right now, I think there's 75 islands in which we have got paralegal aids that we train. Mm. They go through extensive legal training with us, though they are themselves, they have not even passed high school. Many, most of them have not even passed high school. And we, they, they have their own little paralegal boots and uh, the whole community works with them. Now, you know, this is again, I would say the quality is, a, is one of our uh, you know, values. If you do not work with very good quality and you go to a remote island and start telling them the laws, I mean, the mm. husband, if you tell the husband or the mm. wife turns around and tells the husband, you can't do that. The husband can kill the wife if he wants, you know, or throw her away. And, you know, that's it. So you've actually destroyed more. So, so these, slowly over the years, we ensured that these paralegals had 
uh, had that uh, acceptability in the community yes. and then acceptability in the government. And now our paralegal aides are really an accepted community member of the district courts. So they write, uh, 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 you know, uh, they, can, they can write a, uh, an issue that's happening or put up a case which is accepted in the district courts. And mm -hmm. this, this for me is very important. And through them and also through our other members, we link them up to the government services. Mm. Because friendship can be there today, tomorrow. You never know. We are, after all, only an organization. We mustn't be yeah. so vain to think that yeah, we'll yeah. always exist, you know. But it's one organization, but they have to get linked to the government services. And that is what we do very, very strongly. Mm. And, uh, e yeah, so... <laughs> yeah. yeah well it's it's so positive what you're saying i keep thinking this is you know i don't want to give the wrong impression to the listeners that it's all fantastic in your country because every year <laughs> as you said you're getting more of these climate disasters and uh, when i spoke to dr salim ul haq i mean the listeners will remember he's a famous climate scientist he's at the united nations all the time arguing for you know compensation and for Help, you know, proper help, but not just a handout, but more for ongoing structured help. But what I was most impressed with him, uh, it was by his compassion for the Rohingya refugees who had just then come across. You know, we were just getting these, the little bit of news about these floods of millions, you know, nearly now a million people, I think now, came across from Myanmar, and they're still there, I believe. So they've been through several cyclones, a pandemic, and he just showed such positivity and compassion. It really showed up all the other countries in the world that are not kind to refugees, notably Australia and, you know, many parts of Europe too. They're very n not as willing to. He said, oh, we will educate them. We will look after them until they find a way back to their citizenship mm -hmm. in their own country. And it was just such an eye-opener to me, to his, uh, his attitude, which is a little mm -hmm. bit like the way you're talking but how does friendship help people like that? But how do you get also how do you get Europeans and outsiders to 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 help you with this problem? That's the almost unfair thing that you're suffering the, the climate change that we're causing by over you know the uh, emissions intensive countries, and also by the refugee situation. That that's just a, an incredible burden for your country, and yet you're facing it with a smile. How how what can you say about that, Vivian? When you see pain and suffering every day, every day, I have had a woman coming to me with a child, you know, hold, held in her arms with cerebral palsy and telling me in the chores that the local doctor, you know, the quack has said, I can't do anything about with this child. Should I kill the child? That's real story. You know, I have seen women who have who takes care of their husband and leaves, you know, uh, uh, the husband had, uh, 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 you know, it's like leprosy. It's called, uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name, but it's like, it's something like leprosy. And uh, so she would leave the husband there with a bit, uh, uh, with a bit of rice and, and, you know, lentils, walk to Dhaka, which is the city, you know, the, the town. It would take her three days beg on the streets and go back and feed that husband, you know. And poverty level was like this. And in many places, it's like that. So these are people that, when I, you know, when I'm talking with a smile, mm. Bangladesh is a country of 170 million people. 45% are still below poverty line. 
how do you how do they deal how are they prepared for dealing with one wave which comes and takes everything away hmm. you know it's it is you see this every single day you see this all you can do is ensure that they have the strength to survive and live hmm. their resilience their courage this is what you can imbue and why i spoke so strongly on how we try to imbue this in the people that you can live mm. because it's something which we face every day and this this i think has and this and after this is access to services which will strengthen you because if you don't have if your health is bad you can't get enough to eat how are you going to survive how are you going to survive when the la- when the st- storms come in and everything is broken and taken away in front of your eyes what strength you need the, you see this is the first time that a pan- you know that in a crisis like bangladesh suffers every year several times mm. today the world is suffering with one issue Hmm. Bangladesh is suffering issue after issue disaster after disaster several times a year and what does it's not our contribution really to the world <laughs> you know the global climate issue you know but we are the sufferers we have to learn to adapt otherwise we will not survive and it is and this is what we have to do now for the rohingyas you know the day the rohingyas came in you know we were there we are the largest health organization local health organization with the rohingyas we have about 200 250 schools in the rohingya camps we've got you know we've done health water sanitation bathroom whatever you know i i t- i say it easily but i remember the time when the rohingyas came in vivian we had never seen this happen you know friendship has brought children down from trees when the cyclones came i have seen with my own eyes children swept away you know when the when the floods came in and we could do nothing for the child the child was gone before i i could even get the speed boat you know to go after the child even then when the rohingyas came in the pain it was incredible you know i told my staff i said you know don't listen to stories because then you can't function i couldn't function if i started listening to stories you know i said you can't because every time you think you have dealt with catastrophes in that catastrophe what do you say okay god has done it and the end you know when a cyclone comes we are still saying god has done it you know so but here you can get angry because you can see the village is burning on the other side mm-hmm. you see we were standing on this side near technaf and you could see the village is burning on that side mm-hmm. it you cannot i don't know how to explain this the you know we work with compassion we have to work with empathy we our staff has to work with courage it broke us you know in that rain i remember going down in that rain walking in the in the in the in the, in the, in the streets you know with rain and all the refugees all around mm. trying to just figure out what to do where to start and and it was it has been extremely difficult of course in spite of whatever the world says you know it has been bangladesh at vivian who has taken these refugees in the government has taken them in and the government is feeding them of course with the world help because you see the chores that is also our condition that is also our reality <laughs> so we have both on two sides tell me what can you do but smile because if you don't smile you don't get courage <laughs> to continue for tomorrow
Mm. You know, we have to smile. Wow. <laughs> well, the last thing is, uh, oh, I, for, I've, I forgot to ask you about the boat building. There, there's also something in the training of people. You were trying to resuscitate um, traditional crafts that were, you know, traditional. Uh, yes. How did, uh, tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> Some people would love to hear about that. So I am often called a boat lady, which is kind of a bit political, but it's not at all the... <laughs> This is like 20 years ago, 20, even 25 years ago. So, you know, <laughs> Bangladesh has the largest uh, fleet of, had the largest fleet of inland boats in the world, once upon a time, wooden boats in the world. And the technology has come down uh, verbally for more than 5,000 years. And we, nobody has recorded it. And it's a unique technology, which is known as a smooth skin boat building. And the... Uh, and each, because each, each area, each river in Bangladesh, due to communication uh, difficulties, develop their own kind of, not technology as much as designs of different boats. So the, the technology of boat is based, inland river boats, is basically the smooth skin boat with more than 130 different or more, you know, you, you don't exactly know the numbers, more than 120, 30 kinds of different designs. And these had... Suddenly, when my ex-husband and I used to sail on the rivers, because I loved boats, and he actually loved boats, and he put that into me, and uh, we used to sail on the rivers, and we used to see these boats every year disappearing, less and less boats, and we suddenly realized that the people that, we, that, you know, that I later started working with, they, their one single thing which links them all is the culture of the rivers. And the culture of the rivers, the boat for them is their story. Their, the boats are their songs. Boats are their livelihood. Mm. It was so important, you know, that we do something about the boats. So first we started personally doing it. And then I realized personally it was going to get impossible because I had friendship on one side and then it was a bit difficult. So uh, then I, I said, you know, if we are trying to bring human identity and dignity, we cannot ignore the human culture. You know, culture is extremely important. That is what brings dignity and identity to a community. And that is what gives them strength. So we do this cultural preservation of the boats of Bangladesh, which are totally unique. We had to do something because I think it is with the boats that I realized that as soon as you realize that they're going away and you are the only one who has realized this or, you know, your little group is the only one, you are immediately, you have a responsibility. <laughs> you see, you can't run away from that responsibility anymore. <laughs> so I say this realization leads to a responsibility, you know, yeah. and we had to do something. And so we started <laughs> and well, they're beautiful. You should see them. <laughs> I'm going to put some pictures on the, um, this is a podcast, you know, this will be audio only. And I wish the listeners could see you because you're so animated. There's like a little lovely television screen here that, I'll put the photos of the boats on our web page. The main thing that came across from you was be prepared, this message, be prepared. Yeah. You know, nothing would phase you because you've got warehouses full of face masks and you've got, you know, equipment for rice bags. <laughs> you've prepared. You, you are fully aware. And that was the main idea that got through to me. And you were talking to people in Europe on that webinar. There were a lot of donors there. And you talked a little bit about the pandemic, that now the whole world has got this one shared mm -hmm. suffering. You're getting the suffering all the time, but we're sharing this one thing in the world. And you said to them, um, 
there's a way of giving that's a responsible donor. You have to be a responsible donor. Yeah. Like you said, you don't throw the bag of rice at people and take away their dignity. And I have a feeling that you would like, and I think Dr. Salim Al-Haq had the same idea, you would like people to be really partners with you and to be responsible donors. And I'd like to know what, just to finish, what can we learn about a more dignified partnership in climate action? It's not going away. Climate change is really no. accelerating. And so we need to partner with you. Thank you. Uh, just to mention that Dr. Salimun Haq is an advisor to Friendship on Climate Issues. So we are very honored for that and very happy to have him with us. So, yes, um, as I said that, you know, you need, you see, donors and donating, somehow there is a question of having more knowledge and money on one side and less on the other. Now, this needs to be a partnership where we do, you know, the intrinsic knowledge which you have at the field level. So let's put it, the donors vis-a-vis -vis friendship, friendship vis-a-vis -vis the community. It's exactly the same. If we do not work in deep and true understanding together with the community, the commu we will never be able to make a project which is long-term and sustainable. In the same way, if we do not have donors who understand the issues and problems that their partners are facing, you cannot have a sustainable relationship or an output from a project or an impact of a project which is deep and sustainable. You know, we need climate, climate change, climate action, climate crisis is a word which is for many countries, well, for Trump, Mr. Trump and many others, maybe it doesn't exist, but, you know, but it is a climate, it's really an issue for tomorrow, you know, for many of them, it's for issue that can happen, cannot. But I would say now, today, 90% of everyone understands it. Everyone realizes it and everyone wants to do something. Equality, this can happen when there is more equality in the world and there is more responsibility in the world and more solidarity because countries, it doesn't matter. India, Bangladesh, Burma, and you know, it's all the same. And it's a region. <laughs> you know what I mean? When, I, when, the, when the cyclone strikes, it can be with anybody. When the water level rises, it's for anybody. It's not, it's not Sicily and Italy or it's not, you know, it's all one. So this solidarity you need to internalize. Now, there, then there are some mitigation things which are certain people's responsibility. You know, certain countries, certain organizations, certain leaders. There are things the leaders can do. There are things companies can do. There are things we at the field level can do. And then there are things individuals can do. Every one of us has this responsibility. And we need to understand this and work with that. But none of us, you know, if the individual doesn't do it, the, the organizations like ours don't do it, it doesn't go up. Stretching it all, we need respect. In the same way, we need to respect nature. You see, we have created a world where wants, needs, our capitalism, you know, it's so, for me, it's so, that is, that is what we are all striving towards. If they look, are we giving the right of the birds the rights? Are we giving the animals their rights? Are we giving the rivers their rights? Are we giving the trees their rights? 
all of us have equal rights in this world. We are all part of nature. Human beings are also part of nature. And we tend to forget that, you know, in our strives, you know, <laughs> of, of betterment and more. <laughs> I think this is something which needs to be ingrained in us. I think this needs to, as, as an individual, as an organization, as a leader, we need to face this. We need countries which have less need help because they are not always responsible, you know, for this climate crisis, which is happening. Yeah. I am not saying that we only need money or this or that. We need understanding and we need solutions as to what to do. If that solution involves money, be it money. If that solution involves uh, migration, then it's migration. You see, we need that understanding because the world is one. It's, we have, as everybody says, no plan B, it's planet B. So it's, we have, it's one and we need the solidarity to have exist in our minds, in, in our behaviors, because in our minds does not happen, in our actions, from the individual to the politicians, to the leaders, to the corporate houses, greed cannot drive us, you know, no. we cannot be driven by that. It, it is going to spoil the planet. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Runa. <laughs> I respect you. I think, you know, between you and Dr. Salim al-Haq, I've never heard such sparkling, you know, positivity and can-do attitude and innovation and all of that. It's just sparkles out of you. And look at your geography. When I look at the map, I think you're just the end of the line. Of the great Himalayan glaciers <laughs> melting down and you just get that full force as you described at the very beginning. You need You need everybody to be on your side. And I hope a lot of listeners will look up your website um, and they can just press a donate button or they can really get involved, as you said. So thank you very thank much. You. Friendship. Thank you, Vivian. Thank, thank you, you for the much. solidarity. Thank you. That was uh, Runa Khan from an organisation called Friendship. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. We're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Now we'll hear a small part of Dr Salim Ulhaq's talk on a webinar I attended with IED from UK. It's called Climate, COVID-19 and the Collaboration We Need. Uh, so let me start by uh, sharing a few of my thoughts from where I am located here in Dhaka, Bangladesh, about the link between COVID-19, which is now uh, still a major problem here in Dhaka. We're still in lockdown, working from home over the last month and continuing to do that. Uh, but the fact that even though we have this uh, uh, public health pandemic uh, on our heads at the moment, it doesn't mean that climate change has gone away. Climate change is still there. And we were reminded of that fact just a couple of weeks ago here when we had a super cyclone, Amphan, hit, uh, fortunately for Bangladesh, it hit India first and then came to Bangladesh, but it still did a lot of damage. Fortunately, not many lives lost because we have a very, very good emergency warning system and people took shelter. More than two and a half million people were able to be get the warnings and take shelter so that the, the lives lost was minimized. But uh, nevertheless, there was a lot of damage done, particularly to the Shundarban forest, which got hit first. And then that also protected the human habitation, but there was a lot of damage uh, to the forest, the flora and the fauna there. And so 
you know, the, and, and the fact that it cyclones are not new. Cyclones happen every year. But this happened to be a super cyclone because the Bay of Bengal sea surface temperature was elevated by over a degree. And I understand that the Indian government has just launched a climate satellite where they're now monitoring these temperatures on a regular basis. And they have verified the fact that the Bay of Bengal temperature was elevated above normal, which turned it into a super cyclone, which we, we rarely get. Normally, we get normal cyclones. We don't get super cyclones. So this was a particularly bad one in that sense, and we're likely to get more of them. So the bottom line is that climate change continues, climate change impacts continue, and even though we have a, a COVID-19 crisis at the moment, we're going to have to deal with both crises at the same time, a public health crisis on the one hand, a climate change crisis on the other hand, and an economic crisis as a result of that as well. And so to me, just to share a few uh, thoughts of, of my own coming out of this, firstly, to me, one of the biggest lessons that the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, global pandemic has brought to us is the necessity of leaders to listen to the scientists. And we have a vivid demonstration of leaders who listen to the scientists, who have protected their populations. For example, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, where Atala is now sitting, who, who are now COVID-free, and the leaders of several countries, including the richest and most powerful country in the world, who refuse to listen to their scientists and are responsible for the deaths of thousands of their own citizens. I can't you know, think of anything worse as a decision maker of, of these leaders. And they, he's not the only one. There are several others as well around the world, which I won't name, uh, but we know who they are. And they, they have, by ignoring the science, killed, I'll say killed, their own citizens. And that is really unconscionable. And climate change is another one. Climate change scientists have been saying this for a long time. And, you know, they aren't listening. They have to listen if they really want to help their own countries going forward. Uh, the second, I think, emphasis of uh, example that or lesson that is being conveyed is we live in a globalized world. There is no way to put walls and, and barriers around your country you can try to do it, but you're not going to do it. It's not going to be effective. Uh, the pandemic goes around the world. The virus goes across borders. And Bangladesh will also uh, uh, be affected, as every other country will be affected. And we will need to uh, work with each other. So whether we like it or not, the only way to take uh, our ideas forward and to come out of this crisis is to work together, is to cooperate, collaborate, uh, share knowledge and experience and, and uh, help each other, as it were. And then the, the third and final point I will make is with regard to who gets affected. And you mentioned a little earlier that the work I've been doing at IID and I continue to do is focusing on the impacts of climate change on the most vulnerable communities in the most vulnerable countries, particularly the least developed countries in Asia and Africa. As it happens, the pandemic and particularly the lockdown measures in the big cities like Dhaka and, and Mumbai and Cape Town and Nairobi are affecting the most vulnerable communities in the slums in these big cities right now, who are also the, going to be the victims of the impacts of climate change. So it's a double whammy for them in the sense of the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change are also the most vulnerable to the COVID-19 and therefore the corollary of that is anything we do to deal with the pandemic and the economic recovery has to take into account 
it, not just a green recovery or a green uh, uh, future, but also an equitable recovery where we take care of the most vulnerable. To me, just being green is not good enough, although I support uh, green uh, uh, investments and recovery, but green has to be also equitable where we think of not leaving anyone behind, thinking of the most vulnerable and enabling us to support them and to be able to help them going forward. So I think the challenge has become bigger, but the need for our collaboration has also become that much bigger as well. Thank you very much, Salim. Very, very rich comments. Um, you mentioned some countries have handled this better than others. They're mostly the countries that went early. So it wasn't so much about how you locked down, it was about when you did. And in my country, the UK, there's an estimate from an eminent epidemiologist that 20,000 lives would have been saved had the UK locked down a week earlier. So that thing about exponential growth. Now, there's a lesson there, isn't there? Because we've all been saying for a long time that there isn't enough urgency on enacting on the climate crisis. But that urgency has to be found in a global framework, not a national framework. Do you have any thoughts about how we can apply that lesson? Is it possible? Uh, yes, so I think the COVID-19 uh, crisis in itself is a good illustration of that. As you've just said, this is now self-evident. Those who moved first, listened to the science and moved first, were able to protect their citizens, their own citizens. And those who came late were not. And in fact, I, I hold them responsible for those deaths because they refused to take action. And we can make the same case for climate change on a big, much bigger scale unfortunately on a slower time scale. So it's not immediate like uh, the COVID crisis is. And so you don't have to lock down and sit in your house uh, for weeks, but you do have to be better prepared. And, and I hope that that would be one of the biggest lessons that our leaders will take on board. And you know, going up to COP26 now, the UK is in the presidency of that. Uh, I would say the UK bears a big, big, big responsibility uh, in, in taking that message to other leaders around the world and ensuring that climate change is not dropped off the agenda. It is made a high priority. And the lesson being, those of you who will move quickly will be better off than those of you who uh, leave it till later. And that is the big lesson. Um, and again, just to pick up on our role in all of this, I think we have a big role to play in terms of getting the evidence and putting it together in a global context and not just speaking to our own national leaders, but the global leaders collectively. And in, in, in the past, I think we have not done as good a job as we should be doing. And particularly in the sort of global uh, um, think tank world, if you like, it's still very predominantly northern think tanks with a few you know, of us in the south uh, as token voices, I would say. We need to do better than that. We need to have a much more rounded uh, um, group of institutions and people working together in a much more solid uh, form of solidarity and producing the evidence that speaks to all our leaders in different ways. And Fatima is quite right. Your messages are not exactly, it's not a one size fit all message. It is, it, it is disaggregated messages, but there is a one size fit all overall message of tackling a global problem like climate change that requires everybody to be doing something but the something that everybody does can be different in, in different places for different people. And that's really, I think, an opportunity for us as think tanks and researchers. Thank you very much, Salim. Great answer. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show, and the speaker is Dr. Salim Ulhaq from Bangladesh.
One of the audience asked if it was a good idea to merge the UK Department for International Development, DFID, with the Foreign Office. I think it's a bad move, that's for sure. You know, the, the fact that DFID was an independent department with a Secretary of State uh, with a cabinet rank made a huge difference for the UK's aid budget to be ring-fenced to tackle global poverty and humanitarian uh, issues, which Mr. Johnson obviously does not like, and he wants it to be subordinated to political interests. And, you know, in his speech in Parliament, he calls it the great cash point in the, in the sky, which is, you know, extremely derogatory uh, view of, of de development assistance and why Ukraine shouldn't get more than Zambia. If he doesn't know the difference between poverty in Zambia and Ukraine, you know, I have no faith in him being uh, the person in charge of what to do best with money that's supposed to help the poor. On the other hand, in the climate change context, I am not really that disappointed. You know, I would prefer the UK to give their climate obligations, climate finance obligations, to the world that they have agreed to under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And I really don't care if they aid, they want to reduce aid to zero. Let them do that. That's their business. Shut it down. What does it matter to us? But give the money that you have to give us under climate change. That is, a, that is an obligation that we will hold you to. Aid is not an obligation. Aid is just charity that you decided you want to give. You don't want to give it, don't give it. But climate finance, you have to give, and we will fight you for that. Thank you. Thanks to our guests, Runa Khan and Dr. Salim Ulhaq. Thank you to Kate Preston and Radia Salim and the people who invited me to the webinar where I met them. We are keeping our eyes on the front lines of climate change. And as I said, this is episode one in a series about reporting from the front lines of climate change. And some of them are in Australia. We can learn a lot about being prepared, going in early, going in hard, and bringing emissions to zero. A big part of Beyond Zero Emissions work is actually making roadmaps for that, working very hard in the community to make sure it happens as they're doing in Bangladesh. I'd also like to thank Michaela, Andy and Raoul for getting this show to air. My name is Vivian Langford. Tune in next Monday at 5pm. Good night and good luck. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. 
Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media dot studio.